Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast uh, where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have a very special guest. I have with me Dr. James Anderson. He serves at Reformed Theological Seminary, Charlotte, where he's the Carl W. McMurray Professor of Theology and Philosophy, as well as the Academic Dean for RTS Global in New York. And Dr. Anderson is an ordained minister in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. He specializes in philosophical theology, religious epistemology, and Christian apologetics. His doctoral thesis at the University of Edinburgh explored the paradoxical nature of certain Christian doctrines and the implications for the rationality of the Christian faith. His research and writing has also focused on the presuppositionalism of Cornelius Van Til, who you'll notice is our background today and uh, particularly Van Til's advocacy of the transcendental argument, which will be the primary focus of our conversation today. Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Parker. Yeah, I, so I first learned about uh, you and your work through the dividing line with James White, and uh, he was going over your article, I think it's called The Fallible God of Molinism. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a blog post from a number of years ago. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I first got introduced to you maybe back in 2014, and then I've just been consuming everything you put out since then. Um, there's for the for the listeners, there. Uh, Dr. Anderson has a few courses on RTS, uh, the app, and online, going through apologetics, Christian philosophy. Listen to all those multiple times, as well as John Frames, Andrew Hoffaker's. Um, C.S. Lewis course, and there's a bunch of Ronald Nash stuff, which is really great too. But um, while I've benefited from your your blogs and your online presence, I've also benefited from your books. So I want to just hawk a couple of those. So <laughs> we got this one right here. What's your worldview? This has been huge for my ministry uh, with Athletes in Action. When I was in Puerto Rico, we taught an apologetics class and we used this book to teach. We ended up giving out like uh, 30 of them to our students. So that was great. Uh, another one, uh, why should I believe Christianity? This is another uh, great work at the popular level, but um, it's still really deep thought just brought down. Uh, Dr. Anson brings the top shelf cookies down to us. Uh, his dissertation turned book, Paradox in Christian Theology. And I believe this is your latest, David Hume, Great Thinkers. Is this your yeah, latest? Yeah, book? that's the latest. Did I, did I miss one? Is that is there another book in print that I don't have? Nope, that's that's the books. All right. For, for now. Um, so, Dr. Anderson, I, I wanted to get into um, transcendental arguments with you today. Um, real quick, actually, I wanted to bring up this story. I told my friend I would. You were teaching at the Pastors College, which is um, a Sovereign Grace Ministry down uh, in Louisville. And uh, one of my friends there, while I was into your stuff, I said, hey, you should check out this guy, James Anderson. He's awesome. And he goes, I actually know James Anderson. He taught an apologetics course for me. My buddy's name is Jared, and a couple couple of the other students convinced you to play a trick on Jared. They hit his phone, and then uh, his phone was ringing, and they kept on calling it, and you were getting really serious, really angry about it, and that was part of the joke. 
That was part I, of the joke. Yeah, you got to make sure people understand <laughs> that was part of the joke. Yeah, but I didn't the, actually lose the rag. Right. But the so what he told me was the best part of the joke was you acted completely serious, even to the people who were in on the joke. And so then everyone thought that you were just being upset and uh and you ended up pranking uh both parties which was a great story <laughs> yeah so he can yeah. do it both he can that was do, a fun group yeah. yeah he can do philosophical theology and he can prank you with your cell phone so uh dr anson you have two phds one in philosophical theology and one in computer science is that right yep that's right what what do you do your dissertation in in computer science on it was on um uh, algorithms for computer graphics rendering, specifically rendering um, cloth or simulating the, the movement of fabric. It was to do with a, a project that, that um, was looking at online shopping and possibly virtual reality shopping and some of the challenges of buying clothes online because you can't, you can't try the clothes on. Wow. So I was working on some software that would allow you to create a virtual mannequin of yourself with your, you know, your bodily dimensions and bodily shape. And you could try on clothes virtually. And uh, the problem was that uh, that sort of computer simulation, at least going back now, this was been the mid nineties was very computation intensive and you couldn't mm. do it in real time on a, on a average, you know, PC that people would own. So basically, my PhD was coming up with a bunch of cheats, a bunch of tricks, corners that you could cut to simulate fabric in something near to, to real time, at least, you know, long enough to, to keep the customer satisfied. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then your other PhD was in uh, paradox in Christian theology. Was there, did that computer science help you with any of your analytic philosophy at all or not really? Not directly, but indirectly in that if you have a background in computing, then you're very used to thinking things in in logical, systematic terms. Mm. So uh, I guess you would say I'm very left-brained. Uh, I think that's that's right. Left-brain, right-brain. Left-brain is the sort yeah. of analytical, systematic. Um, and uh, so that that way that I'm wired to think trying to break things down into logical categories in a very systematic analytical way helped me when I, when it came to the topic of, of paradox, for example, uh, when you're faced with theological paradox, what are your options? Well, maybe we can divide the field of options into various categories and then evaluate each of those categories systematically. And, and that way you feel like you've, you've covered the, the range of options. Um, and there were other, ways in which you know logic and um making distinctions came into into that philosophical theological work yeah well so I, I think that's interesting too because um a lot of times in theology we think of the analytic uh, philosophers as the, the logic choppers and they're chopping everything down and they're trying to destroy our mystery you actually used logic uh and analytic philosophy in your analytic theology to preserve mystery and to preserve mm -hmm. some some paradox so um Real quick for the listeners who are uninitiated, what is philosophical theology? Philosophical theology is an approach to theology. So theology broadly is the study of God and the things of God. So, you know, any, any Christian doctrine in principle comes falls under theology. But philosophical theology is an approach to theology that uh, applies the, the tools the distinctions, the methodologies of philosophy, and 
mostly today that would be analytic philosophy, although not exclusively, mm -hmm. but approaching uh, the topic of Christian theology from a philosophical perspective. So I like to say to people, in, in philosophical theology, theology is the noun and philosophical is the adjective, mm. because what we're doing is theology. That's what it's about. But the, the, the mode of doing it is philosophical in nature. And I don't think there's a sharp distinction at the end of the day between philosophy and theology. Yeah. But generally speaking, that's the idea. Approaching uh, Christian theology with the, the tools, the methodologies, the vocabularies, the argumentation of, of the philosophical disciplines. Okay. Uh, I, this might be throwing a wrench in because I didn't uh, let you know where I was going to ask this beforehand, but do you find a distinction then between philosophical theology and analytic theology, or is, is maybe analytic a, a subset of philosophical theology? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, probably uh, it, it, the best way to characterize it is that analytic theology is a particular approach to philosophical mm -hmm. theology, because there are philosophical theologians who wouldn't identify themselves with the analytic tradition in philosophy. But conversely, any analytic theologian is going to be, in the nature of the case, uh, engaged in philosophical theology. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. All right. Well, I wanted to then jump right into transcendental arguments. Uh, this is something that is huge for me. I love it. I started reading Van Til. Uh, back in 2013, then discovered your work and John Frame and Bonson and, and the whole gang. I listened through uh, your apologetics and your philosophy uh, lectures a lot, so much so that I actually uh, I got a tattoo of, of something I heard in your class. Uh, it says, I think, therefore, uh, I am, and um, which is Van Til's, uh, a way that you've characterized Van Til's apologetic methodology. If I'm able to think, then the great I am exists. Um, so, so sorry if that shocks you to see your words on my. Well, arm you here. told me you told me you were a Christian, and now you're telling me you've got a tattoo. I, <laughs> that's right, and I'm responsible for it. Yeah, yeah, it's your fault, man. Wow, <laughs> led me astray. No, that's um, very cool. So, I wanted to just ask just right up front: what do you, how do you define transcendental arguments? Transcendental arguments in general, or in general, right? Yeah. So, transcendental argument in general is basically an anti-skeptical argument that tries to take something, um, whatever the skeptic is doubting, and to argue that that thing that the skeptic is doubting is in fact presupposed in some non-trivial sense by something that the skeptic is himself engaged in, usually mm -hmm. some some mental or cognitive activity. Um, so uh, uh, what, a anti what a transcendental argument tries to do is to show that the skeptic is, is involved in a performative self-contradiction. Yeah. That is, the thing that they are denying, they are tacitly relying on in order to express their doubts, to have their doubts, or some sort of uh, intellectual activity that is involved in their doubting. Okay, so it's a, uh, sometimes called a retorsive argument. Mm. But the basic idea, as I say, is to show that the skeptic has to necessarily presuppose the very thing that he is doubting or denying. I, I love that you use that word. You're maybe the only other person I've heard use a retorsive, uh, the retorsive language. I, I learned that in a uh, Transcendental Arguments book on, on moral theory. And to re retorsive means to turn back, like retort. So, 
yeah, it's turning back on the person. So it's like, I've heard it explained a lot this way that it's as if someone says, um, we're, if someone were in a debate arguing against the existence of air, they're using air in order to make their argument. And so th that performance of them using air is self-defeating. It's showing that what they're arguing for, even if it's really logical and sounds good, can't be the case. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. Um, I'm not sure. I, I know that Greg Bonson used that analogy. I'm not sure if it originated with him. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the idea of, of someone who's arguing against the existence of air, but the whole time they are actually depending on the existence of air. They could not debate. They could not articulate their, their air skepticism or their mm -hmm. uh, anti-airism <laughs> were it not for the existence of air. So we might put it this way, that the air is a physical precondition of debate, but what a transcendental argument is trying to expose are the metaphysical preconditions of debate. So not just the physical things that we would need, but what metaphysically is required for us to think, to reason, to have uh, veridical experiences of the world, various intellectual activities that we engage in. Yeah. Okay. So I, I thought um, before we go into like a specific transcendental argument for the existence of God, I thought we could stick with transcendental arguments in general for a little bit and see, are there other ones out there? So like, I'm, I immediately think of Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Is that a transcendental argument? I think it is. Uh, and I'm, I'm not alone. Um, for example, um, Adrian Barden, philosopher who's written on Transcendental Arguments, number of articles. Um, in his, uh, he actually has an entry in the uh, Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. He wrote the, the entry on Transcendental Arguments, and he makes a comment almost in passing, uh, although he's making an important point uh, as he makes it, that, uh, that Descartes' uh, cogito ergo sum can be interpreted as a transcendental argument because what it is doing is it is seeking to show that the person who doubts their own existence is presupposing that, that their, their existence is a necessary condition of their performing the, the action of doubting yeah. their existence. So if, when you put it in those terms, you can see that it is, it's an anti-skeptical argument specifically targeted at self-skepticism. Um, I don't think there are many people out there who, who literally doubt their own existence. Um, and that, that, Descartes wasn't really re really trying to address that that problem per se, yeah. but in the process, uh, the argument that he comes up with, what's the one thing I can't doubt? That's the kind of transcendental argument. Do you, I, I love that. I, I agree with you and probably because I've listened to your stuff so much, but there's, it's, it's, it's become popular in a lot of apologetic circles to say that's a, it's a dumb argument because all that there is, all you can really prove is that there's thinking going on. And I know this has been uh, a popular critique of, of Descartes' cogito for a while. What, what do you say to that? Do you, I mean, to me, it seems successful. It seems like, yeah, I, I can't actually doubt my own existence because I have to be the one doubting. What, what would you say to that? Is it solid? Can we know that we exist through that argument? Well, yeah, because um, the, the proposition that's being doubted is I exist. Mm. And so uh, in order to doubt that I exist, there has to be a referent of I, okay? Yeah. The I has to be fixed, and there has to be one doing the doubting. And so in order to doubt that I exist, 
someone must exist to have that thought and the person who exists to have that thought has to be the I otherwise you you don't have it uh, you're not the, the the doubt itself is logically incoherent hmm. so um no I don't think it's enough to say that thinking is going on uh, if if the target proposition is I exist and skepticism is being targeted at that I exist proposition then uh, in order to doubt it there has to be an I who is thinking that to fix the referent yeah, I really like that. I think I, I just read um, Richard Swinburne came out with a new book, uh, Are We Bodies or Souls? And I think in there he he tackles this by saying that thinking is a property and there's no just free floating properties. And so I'm the substance to which the property of thinking belongs. Yeah. Is, is that is that close to what you're saying or? Yeah, I, I, what I'm saying is that, well, two things. One is that, that all thinking requires a thinker. Okay, mm. I don't think there can be. I don't think it's coherent. Yeah. For to have mental content without a mind, and a, and a mind is going to be a, a center of consciousness, going to be a subject of thought. But I'm also saying that the, the moment you formulate the proposition, I exist, if that's going to be a coherent proposition towards which doubt is being expressed, the I in that proposition, I exist, has to have a referent, has to refer yeah. to something, yeah. and it refers, of course, to the person who is thinking or conceiving of the proposition I exist. Mm. So um, I don't think I need to go as far as, as Swinburne does in okay. order to, to make that point. But he, um, I mean, in the, in the book that you just mentioned, he's basically defending a kind of uh, Cartesian dualism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I think it's, uh, I think Augustine may have made this point better uh, when he was arguing against um, the school. The ca- acad- academicians, when they were, they became skeptics to to Plato's uh, chagrin. I'm sure he was he was rolling in his grave. Oh yeah, and <laughs> and, and he says, you know, uh, they they say, well, maybe you can doubt that you exist. And he goes, see, Fowler, assume, you know, if I'm if I'm wrong, if I'm incorrect, then I still exist because I'm the one who is incorrect. Yeah. And then I, I think Descartes may have just grabbed that and and took it for his own without uh, citing the footnote. Yeah. Yeah, or, or another way to put it is that, that uh, Augustine is engaged in a negative transcendental argument, yes. whereas Descartes is engaged in a positive one, where it's actually drawing some some positive metaphysical conclusions about the not just the existence, but the nature of the I. Yes, that's great. And that's a great transition, because transition, I want to talk about positive and negative TAs. Um, I first learned about this distinction from your lecture, and it was really helpful because I saw a lot of these different people, Robert Stern and... Is it Rob? Yeah, Stern and, and all these different guys talking about transcendental arguments, but they were talking about different ones. They're talking about deductive and retorsive. And but your language, it, it's probably not original to you, but at least I heard it from you first. Positive and negative was so helpful for me. So can you just go in a little bit in into depth on a positive versus a negative transcendental argument? Sure, I'll I'll try. And I'm I don't think that distinction is original to me, but mm-hmm. I can also recall where I got it from. It's one of those things that, you know, when you read the literature, you pick up certain ideas, you can't remember the exact source. Yeah. But the way I understand the distinction between a, a, a negative uh, transcendental argument and a positive transcendental argument is a negative one is is basically refuting a skeptical position or refuting r- refuting an opponent's position. Mm. So suppose uh, a, an opponent holds some metaphysical thesis M. And we want to refute M. So what we argue is that if if M were actually the case, then 
the holder of M would not be able to articulate that position or would not be able to um, to conceive of it or to make a logical argument for it. In other words, we're targeting an opponent's position. So that position is then subject to a, 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 a transcendental critique arguing that that position would undermine the possibility of rational thought altogether, or at least at least some aspect of rational thought that the, the opponent is relying on. So it's not, um, it's not a, a making a positive argument for your own position. It's attempting to refute uh, someone else's position. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the, the positive transcendental argument would be, here's my position let's call it M, some some metaphysical claim, because transcendental arguments, I think, at least the most interesting ones, are, are really concerned with some sort of metaphysical claim about the, the nature of us or the nature of reality. Um, that, would, that would be in, in distinction to like an epistemological one, which just says what we have to think about. We're, we're talking about metaphysically what actually exists. Yeah, but even even the epistemological ones have some metaphysical content mm. to them, so I don't think there's a sharp distinction there because even what we what we would call concept directed or belief directed transcendental yeah. arguments, still the belief is a is metaphysical. It's about some yeah. state okay. of affairs. But anyway, so the positive uh, the positive transcendental argument is is putting forward forward positive reasons to hold your position. Uh, let's call it M again, suppose my position is M, some metaphysical claim. With a positive transcendental argument, I'm going to argue, if you deny M, or if you doubt M, then you are uh, denying the necessary preconditions of your doubt. That is, in order, in order to doubt M, you actually need to presuppose M at some deeper level. So you're, you're, you're making a positive argument for your position. Now, I think that's somewhat helpful distinction. It isn't a clean-cut distinction because yeah. arguably any uh, any negative transcendental argument could be restated as a positive yeah. uh, transcendental argument. So if someone else's position is, again, I'll just call it M, if, if your opponent's position is M, and that's a metaphysical claim, a negative transcendental argument is actually a positive transcendental argument for for not M, and not yeah. not M is also going to be some metaphysical claim. It may be a very broad metaphysical claim, but yeah. just just to just to put some flesh on the bones, suppose that the opponent is a materialist. Okay, so the materialist says that everything that exists is is material in nature. Um, however you want to define material, but, you know, fundamental physical particles or something like that. And suppose I argue, well, if materialism is true, and this is going to be a negative transcendental argument, if materialism is true, then there are no such things as beliefs, because beliefs are mental entities and not material entities. And so if there are no such things as beliefs, then there's no such thing as a belief in materialism, in which case you can't be a materialist after all. Yeah. So in order to be a materialist, I'm arguing you have to actually reject your position of materialism. Now, that was negative. That was that was attacking a materialist position. Mm-hmm. But then what the effect of that is is to you could say is, is a positive transcendental argument for non-materialism. 
But of course, there are many versions of non-materialism. Yeah. There could be dualism. There could be idealism. You know, there's a whole panoply. So if you, if you think about the entire pie of metaphysical possibilities, if you knock out one slice of the pie, materialism, you're left with the rest of the pie of all the non-materialist metaphysical positions. And so you could say you've, you've given a positive transcendental argument for the, for the big leftover slice of the pie. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. I like that. I, I think I like your materialism one. I was thinking of like William Hasker's transcendental refutation of determinism, I think. And it's, it's the same thing. It's if it's successful, then he has shown that materialism or that determinism is out. And so if determinism out is out, then non-determinism, because this one's been reduced yeah. to absurdity. And then, like you said, there's, it's that whole piece of the pie, though. It could be uh, it could be that's that's materialistic determinism is out. But we have divine determinism and we have uh, libertarianism and we have all these other kind of isms that you then have to argue for right. positively yeah. for. It, it's, it's, he's, he's targeting naturalistic determinism. Naturalistic determinism. Right. Yeah. yeah, I should have said that. Yeah. And he's following um, C.S. Lewis in his miracles, which I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually writing a paper for Dr. Van Hooser this semester, uh, a, a Vantillian analysis of miracles, because I think Lewis is actually doing, I could be totally wrong. But I think he's he's following Vantillian lines, unbeknownst to him, of course. But he starts yeah. with presuppositions in chapter one, then he goes with one or two about how you know reason needs two world, uh, two levels of reality, and naturalism and pantheism only have one. Then he goes to a negative transcendental argument in three, and then in four. I think it's a, a positive transcendental argument, though most philosophers think uh, it's an inference to the best explanation. But they're probably right. I'm probably wrong. We'll see. But, but I think uh, you're right about miracles. The yeah. Lewis's book Miracles, in that he does adopt what, for all intents and purposes, is a presuppositional line of, of argument, um, a, a argument against naturalism as being, uh, you know, unable to account for the reasons, us having reasons for our beliefs. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's good, Lewis. Yeah, well, and again, I got that from you and, and John Frame. Um, I wonder, are you? Do you use the the language self defeat, or do you use? Do you like that language for for a negative? I, sense of I sometimes use the language of self defeat. Um, you could speak about self self refuting positions. You could speak uh -huh. about self defeating positions. Um, uh, I, you know, I think these are, are loose terms for any position that you show to be uh, to ultimately undermine itself in some yeah. either either it's inconsistent with its own truth or it's inconsistent with its own rationality being held rationally okay yeah i'm still waiting for that day where i can i can use like i think maybe planning uses this word self-referentially incoherent like that just sounds so great if i could mm -hmm. say that mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm, I'm nervous to say it because it's it's a really strong claim um i wanted to just briefly introduce people to your um your dissertational work so i i um i love transcendental arguments because i read your stuff and i want to join the conversation i want to make my own my TED's professors usually aren't all that impressed with my work, but um, I used uh, for this last uh, the last semester I used your McCrew and your Rapt to argue for Trinitarian Mysterianism, which um, is a, a term that you didn't choose yourself, but I think fits uh, your, your view. Um, I argue that the, the Trinity is a mystery, but it's a warranted mystery because, uh, like you say in your book, um, incomprehensibility gives us, we would expect to not be able to fully comprehend God. And then arguing, then connecting that mystery 
to the one and many mystery that we find in reality. And so, yeah, sure, the Trinity is a mystery, but so is reality, and the mystery matches. And so I wonder if, if just real briefly you could do a better job than I just did of talking about how <laughs> incomprehensibility makes sense of, of the Trinity. Well, I'm not sure I would put it in those terms. I wouldn't say that yeah. divine incomprehensibility uh, makes sense of the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, it, it's actually um, a, a rationale for, in a sense, excusing the fact that we can't make sense of the of the Trinity, which which makes it sound like it's a bad thing. I don't think it is. Yeah. But um, what I what I argue in the book is that the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility serves as a defeater defeater. Yeah. Okay. Or at least it contributes to to being a defeater defeater. Uh, a defeater is is some some belief or experience that undermines another belief that you have or would have. So, so the way that I look at it is we have positive warrant for the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. And as you know, in, in my book, I, I argue for a particular uh, model, leaning heavily on planting of how, how it is that we come to know that Scripture is the word of God. And then from Scripture, we have teachings about God, that there is one God, and there are these three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so you have this biblical, positive biblical warrant for the, the components of the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's, that's the initial belief that, that we have as Christians based on Scripture. And then there's a, a potential defeater in the fact that when we reflect on these claims, it seems as though they're in logical tension. And I won't get into the details of why, because they've yeah. been well covered. But but basically, it's the the the, the oneness threeness problem of the Trinity. So how is it that each of the each of the persons? How is it that the Father can be God, the Son can be God, and the Spirit can be God, um, and yet they can be distinct? Um, it has to do with identity relations, and there's, there's various ways that you can articulate the problem. So if if there is this this logical tension. Well, someone would say, well, that actually defeats the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, if it's if it's contradictory, then it can't be true. And what I say is, well, uh, to say that it's contradictory is, is moving too quickly. Uh, there may be a seeming contradiction, but there are a number of considerations that allow us to, to conclude that it's, although it seems to be a contradiction or seems to involve some logical problem, um, that isn't actually the case. And the doctrine of uh, divine incomprehensibility is part of the argument for why we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that it is contradictory. So mm. we can say, well, it, it seems to be inconsistent. Isn't that doesn't that give us good rational grounds for thinking it is incoherent? Well, if if God is incomprehensible, then we we shouldn't be all that surprised that there are elements uh, or, or, or teachings about him that that we can't rationally comprehend that we can't mm -hmm. spell out in a logically perspicacious manner. So if that's the case, then the inference from seeming contradiction to actual contradiction isn't isn't a warranted inference. Um, certainly, the doctrine of divine comprehensibility would be one reason not to follow through on that inference. And there are some others that I um, articulate in the book. Yeah, it, you do such a great job just right now, but also in the book. And um, for those who uh, are following along in theology, um, Oliver Crisp just came out of, with a book called Analyzing Doctrine. And uh, he actually uses Dr. Anderson's approach um, in, in his book, uh, in the chapter on the Trinity. I thought that was great. Another 
example, I'm not sure if, if you use this in your book or, or maybe you would want to distance yourself from this, but C.S. Lewis talks about this with uh, the Flatlanders. And, you know, imagine you drew a little uh, stick figure and he became sentient. You made him sentient, whatever. Just it's a it's an analogy or thought experiment. So you talk to him and you say, hey, look, I, I know you live in two dimensions. I live in in at least three or four dimensions, whatever, how many we live in nowadays. Um, I know it's so hard for you to understand because you have you don't have depth in your world, but I have depth in my world. So you're going to just have to trust me on this one. It makes sense that you wouldn't be able to understand because you don't live in three dimensions, but I do. Is there, I know it's not a perfect uh, analogy there, but would you ever use that? I think it's a very helpful analogy. It's, it's one that I, I used in the book okay. very briefly. Yeah. Um, I used the analogy of, of exactly that, of the two dimensions and the three dimensions. So the example I used was, we can conceive of a cone. Okay, so like that's like right. An I mean, ice cream cone as a three-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at a cone from a two-dimensional perspective, from the side, it looks like a triangle. Yeah. From the from the underneath or from above, it looks like a circle. Okay. If you're mm -hmm. looking at it at different two-dimensional planes. So if if there were a, a creature, a flatlander, who lived in two dimensions and could only conceive of two-dimensional objects. And he, this flatlander received a revelation from outside of flatland that there is this object that is at once circular and triangular. Mm -hmm. To him, that's going to seem contradictory. How could something both be a circle and a triangle? That, I mean, that's obviously uh, contradictory or incoherent. Yeah. But of course, he doesn't have cognitive access to the third dimension. He is, because of his uh, limitations, he can only think two-dimensionally. Two he, he literally cannot conceive of a three-dimensional object that is both circular and triangular, namely a cone. But of course, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a cone. It doesn't mean that someone from a three-dimensional world couldn't communicate those claims to him. And it doesn't mean that he wouldn't be warranted in believing them if it was a suitably authoritative uh, source that was giving those to him. So I, yeah, I, I use that flatland analogy and um, Oliver Crisp in his, uh, in his recent uh, essay in that, or chapter in that book, he, he takes that and kind of runs with it and yeah. uh, de develops it a lot, a lot more. So I, I think it, um, I think it's very, very helpful um, obviously, we're not saying that the, the Trinity is solved by adding spatial dimensions. Right, That's not right, the point. Right, yeah. Although I think there have been some <laughs> some people have tried to do that. Yep, yep. Um, but it's of course it's an, an analogy saying that there's a there's an a, an extra aspect of reality that we don't have access to. But if if you did understand that aspect of reality, then you could see how these 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 paradoxical claims can be resolved. Yeah, I, I love that. It's been so helpful for me as well, because I work as a, a campus uh, miss, missionary as well. So I'll just draw a little stick figure. And so basically, I'm, I'm relying on Chris' work and your work and C.S. Lewis just to introduce people and say, look, it makes sense, right? It, it makes sense that there would be this gap in in ontology between me and a little stick figure, right? If he could be sent. And it's it's been so helpful for people. Instead of me having to say, <laughs> use some terrible analogy, and get yelled at by the little uh, Irish guys on, on that's uh, right at heresy, Patrick. So yeah, I don't talk about eggs or water or anything like that. So really appreciate that. Moving that back to transcendental arguments, it seems 
I could be totally wrong here. It seems like you like to focus more on on science induction, uh, those kind of arguments, rather than the the one in the many problem. Is is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? Or I don't think it's a matter of want so much as opportunities that okay. have have arisen. So. Um, I wrote an article uh, quite a while ago now, I think it's dated 2005, um, where I uh, compare mm. the epistemological arguments of Cornelius Van Til and Alvin Plantinga and argue that there's actually some striking similarities there. If knowledge, so, then God, is that? If knowledge, then God, yeah, that's right. Love that one. Um, so I, I try to explain Van Til's conception of a transcendental argument and also some of the ways in which he at least sketched out that transcendental argument. And one of the, one of the things I observed in that is that even Van Til himself um, doesn't have one version of the transcendental argument. Yeah. He, he speaks of it in the singular, like it's one argument, but actually when he, when he puts some flesh on the bones of that, uh, he's actually looking at different aspects. Like there's, there's an argument from induction, uh, there's an argument from the one and the many. There's an argument, sort of a Kantian argument from the rational order of, of the world. Um, and then Plantinga has his own batch of arguments that are epistemological in the sense that they're arguing that, that the existence of God, or at least the falsity of naturalism, but in yeah. some cases the existence of God is a metaphysical precondition of knowledge or rationality or something along those lines. So in that article, I did talk a bit about the one and the many argument. Yeah. Uh, but I have not uh, had the opportunity to, to further the discussion of that particular aspect of the transcendental argument, much as I would like to. Okay. But... Um, I, uh, I found I was very interested in the argument from logic because mm -hmm. um, that comes up a lot in presuppositional apologetics, the okay, idea yeah. that logic, uh, logic presupposes God. It was one of Greg Barnson's triad of uh, arguments, and I thought it just needed to be stated more, more rigorously. So I basically teamed up with, with Greg Welty, who's done some really groundbreaking work on on what we call theistic conceptualism um, to formulate this argument from logic. So that's that's taken a lot of my attention, partly because once that argument's out there, it gets discussed and people are responding to it, either affirming it or criticizing it. And then you feel an obligation to defend your argument, you know, like you, you have a child and someone's bullying your child and you want to step in <laughs> and defend your child. Um, right. So, so I've written, probably written more, much more about that in the uh, in the recent Hume book. Of course, Hume is well known for articulating the problem of induction, yeah. and I, I think that there's there's scope for a transcendental argument on the back of that, which um, I discussed a little bit in that book. So, yeah, I, I I don't really have a particularly good excuse for not talking more about the problem <laughs> of the one and the many, although I think it is more more challenging uh, yeah. every time every time I reflect on it. It's an argument that seems to have tremendous potential, but in order to articulate and defend it, I, I think it requires quite a bit of work. Yeah. Um, so it's um, it's it's a it's a project that you don't want to um, uh, tackle in a half baked fashion. Right. I, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. I've seen. I think that 
this is a, a project I'd love to work on at some point is is using your work um, to say, hey, the Trinity, it's not irrational. It's a warranted paradox or warranted mystery. We can believe that. And then pairing that with the mystery of the, the one and the many. But that means we have to do a lot of work in modern uh, metaphysics and, and trace out the problem there. So it's not just this ancient problem that Plato wrestled with. No, it still pops up today all the time in uh, the, the problem of um, ambiguity or, or vagueness, right? And so you have to trace it down and show. But I think what's really interesting, which an interesting project I'd love to work on or put it out there for other people, is uh, all this Bavink um, scholarship coming forward and his organic motif, which mm-hmm. I think probably influenced Van Til um, in, the, in his uh, unity and diversity talk, showing that... Um, Vestigia Trinitatis, like these these fingerprints of the Trinity all around creation, not in various triads, though, you know, John Frame might uh, might disagree with that, but rather in this unity and diversity that we find all over. It's on our coins, you know, e pluribus unum. And mm-hmm. so I think that, that your work can be very, very influential in that in that conversation. So I'm hoping to see that. I'm hoping to work on it myself. Maybe just us talking about it. Other people get excited about it. But I think your work's going to have to be because the Trinity... We can't just cut corners and make it like uh, completely comprehensible for us if we want to argue for it. So, yeah, and and the the challenge with this particular argument is on the one hand, you want to defend the claim, and this is how Van Til puts it, that the the ontological trinity is a precondition of rationality or precondition of intelligible experience. And exactly what, what he means by that, of course, can be debated. But he, he, he clearly thinks that there is a transcendental argument or a, an aspect of the transcendental argument that uh, concludes with the ontological trinity. Yeah. Okay? But at the same time, Van Til thinks, and I think, and you think apparently, that the ontological trinity is itself mysterious. Right. That is, it's not something that we can state in a in a precise, logically consistent fashion. So you've you've got to uh, navigate this this tension between, on the one hand, arguing that that X is a precondition of rationality, but also arguing that that same X also um, transcends rationality. Uh, yeah. goes, goes beyond what we can rationally comprehend. Now, I, I, I don't think that that's uh, an impossible task, but you, you have to take in the measure of it before you, uh, before you seek to uh, accomplish that task. Yeah, and it's a, it is a lofty, tough project, and one with uh, a lot at stake because we're talking about you know the very nature of our God. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of room for error there. Uh, so, with that in mind, and with that, you know. Uh, how nerve-wracking that is. Let's move on to one that's less uh, terrifying. <laughs> to, uh, can we can we talk a little bit about your human-inspired transcendental argument? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's coming from this book, uh, published just recently. Um, and and so the human-inspired argument again, you've already broached it with um, with your talk of Van Til, and it is Van Til-inspired as well. But it's from the problem of induction, or it's it's. It has to do with induction, which becomes a problem if you're not a Christian, apparently. So, can you can you lay it out for us? Do you have it fresh in your mind, or? Sure, I can try to. Um, the The problem of induction is simply the the problem of explaining why our in, our inductive inferences are warranted, or why they are reliable or or truth directed. Because an inductive inference is where you take a series of observations 
that are always past observations and extrapolate them to to the future. So you yeah. draw a general conclusion from particular observations. So you say, I, uh, you know, I, I saw that um, apples fall downward on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. Now it's Friday. So am I warranted in believing that apples will fall downwards on Saturday and Sunday? Okay, that's mm. simple inductive inference. And, and arguably, many of the uh, laws of physics, if we know that, know that there are laws of physics and we know what those laws are, they're based on, on uh, inductive inferences from empirical observations. What Hume observes is that these inferences have a presupposition or an assumption behind them, namely that nature is uniform, that it is uniform across time and uniform across space. In other words, the way that the universe operates in the past is also how it will operate in the future. And the way that the universe operates here, where we're making our observations, is also how it operates in other parts of the universe that are far distant from us and we don't have empirical access to. So all of our inductive inferences, all of, all of these extrapolations from a limited sample of empirical observations to very, very general, supposedly universal conclusions about yeah. the laws of nature, uh, depend on this assumption of the uniformity of nature. And Hume argues that, well, he has a very uh, restrictive epistemology where either something is true by definition or it has to be confirmed by immediate sense experience, has to be known as a, as a matter of fact, as he calls it, by immediate sense experience. And he argues that on, those, on that basis, you, you cannot know that nature is uniform. Uh, it's not true by definition because there's nothing nothing uh, illogical about a chaotic universe. Um, mm -hmm. The idea that, that apples could fall upwards on Saturday and Sunday is quite consistent with the laws of logic. Uh, there's nothing, um, it's not true by definition that nature yeah, is uniform. There's a possible world where that, where that could happen. Yeah, that'd be another way to put it. Yeah, there's a, there's a possible world in which the, the laws of nature do not operate in a predictable fashion, or there are no laws of nature at all. Sure. The other option for Hume is to know that by experience and without getting into the details of his argument, what he says in effect is that you, you cannot know it by experience. It's not the sort of thing that you could know on an empirical basis because any, any argument for the uniformity of nature on the basis of experience will, will actually be an inductive argument. And that's the problem in the first place. You can't argue inductively for the reliability of induction. And that would be uh, viciously a, circular, right? Exactly. It, it yeah. would be, yeah, it would be viciously circular in that you would have to assume the very thing that's that's in dispute. So for, on a human basis, he's right. There is no uh, solution to the problem of induction. And cutting a long debate short, what you really need is um, some sort of a priori knowledge of the uniformity of nature, what, what Kant called a synthetic a priori. So synthetic yeah. a priori is a, is a sort of factual truth, a truth about the world, not just a truth about logic or truth about ideas, but a factual, we might say metaphysical truth about the world that can also be known um, apart from sense experience or prior to prior, sense yeah. experience. It has to be a synthetic a priori. And that raises the whole problem of how creatures like us, finite creatures like us, could have synthetic a priori knowledge of any kind 
but particularly synthetic a priori knowledge of universal truths about the universe. Yeah. A truth that a truth that, that applies to every single time, uh, point in time, moment in time, and, and point in space, the uniformity of nature, which is what, what is required. And uh, Kant has his particular answer. I mean, it's famous. This is one of his most famous arguments uh, that uh, that we can have synthetic a priori knowledge as long as basically we make the human mind active rather than, than passive. So we actually impose the uniformity of nature on our experience rather than, than knowing it from experience. Yeah. So this is Kant's Copernican revolution, that it's actually uh, the, the order, the laws of nature, are, are imposed by the structures of our mind on our experience, and that's what makes nature uniform, in effect. The problem with that, again, cut a long story short, is that it, um, it's, it's an anti-realist position that I think reduces to relativism, because then the, the order that I impose on my experience isn't necessarily the order that you, you impose or anyone else imposes on experience. You need some guarantee that the way that I am ordering my experiences is the same as everyone else is ordering our experiences. And also there's the problem that, as Kant himself admits, you don't really know reality as it is in yeah. itself. You don't know the ding and sick, the, yeah. the numital. You just know some um, subjectively constructed reality, the phenomenal world. And what I point out in the book, and it's a relatively brief argument, but, but I think it's headed in the right direction, is that... Uh, both Kant and Van Til are, are trying to answer the question, or at least one way to understand Van Til's approach, is how do we answer that question of synthetic a priori knowledge? And whereas Kant gives us a anthropocentric solution to it. Yeah, man-centered. Van Til, right. Uh, Van Til gives us a theocentric solution where God is both the author of the uniformity of nature, God being the creator of all things, is the one who, who imposes order upon the world, but also God being the creator of us, uh, creatures created in his image to think his thoughts after him, has given us minds th with um, rational structures or, or conceptual scheme that maps onto that order. So God, as the author of nature and also as, as the author of our minds, becomes the guarantor mm. of the, um, the, the fact that our, our minds are able to interpret the world objectively in a right way. And we can, we can know the objective laws of nature in that fashion. Yeah, I love that. It's so great. And I, I think that maybe you use um, Nash's or, or Gordon Clark's analogy of uh, there's there's these jars for for explaining Kant's transcendental idealism, um, you know. So why why isn't Kant's you know anthrop anthropocentric man centered view why is that wrong? Well, as you said, it, it leaves you in the skepticism because there's this uh, there's the jelly out in the universe and we're jelly jars and it's it's crammed in into our jar. Why does why do all the jelly jars if they're sentient? Why do they think that all jelly is shaped like like jars? Well, because they are jars. But how do I know my jar is the same as your jar? Or if you're using the uh, the meat the uh, sausage, uh, crank, mm -hmm. you know, you put sausage in. How do I know that when I'm cranking it and sausages are coming out for me? Why? Maybe this guy's got hot dogs and I've got brats. And so it's it's making this, it's making it so subjective to the individual because there's no guarantee, like you said, that 
my concepts, which project out into the world, or or at least the framework inside that's interpreting the data, how do I know that's the same as yours? And in in Van Til's view and the way you're formulating it, we can be we can have guarantee of that because God made us to know His thoughts, and there actually is structure in the world. Yeah. Is that right. So there's there's structure out there, and we have concepts. To yeah. So there's that. there's sort of two things that need to be in place. Actually, three. Okay. There's there's the the world, the natural world, has to be objectively ordered. Yes. Okay. So there have to be objective laws of nature. It has to be a predictable, orderly place. That's 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 um, uh, component one. Component two is that uh, our minds need to be fitted toward that order. In other words, there needs to be a fit or a correspondence yes. between the, the the concepts that we use and the order that there is in, in the world. This is the synthetic a priori knowledge that we have. It's sort of um, what jump starts our empirical knowledge or our yeah. inductive reasoning about the world. And then the third component is, of course, there needs to be uh, uniformity in our minds that is to say that our, all of our minds need to be fitted in the same way so i need to know not only that my mind is fitted towards the world but that your mind is also fitted towards the world so that when i draw re- reliable conclusions they're going to align with your reliable conclusions and that we can all do scientific investigation together and and have have a, a, a consistent corporate knowledge of the natural world yeah, I love that. And every time I hear you say that, and every time I hear people talk about this, it reminds me of the, the kid's toy where you have different shapes and you got these pegs and you got to put them in the right one. And it's got to match up. And mm-hmm. it just makes me think that we all have to have the same holes, the, all, the shapes in our head. And we go out and we find the the uh, cindra, this the square, and we find the, uh-huh. the, the cylinder. Yeah, cylinder. Thank you. And and we have to put them in there. And my, my holes have to fit your holes as we're looking out and saying, okay, here's a triangle and put that in there. And I think even deeper than that is there has to be a justification for believing that mine are, are the same as yours. And, and ultimately we'd, we'd find that in scripture, right? That God has said this times and seasons will continue. We, we have this justification we've made in God's image to think his thoughts after. So we have like this, these, these metaphysical beliefs. We also are epistemologically, we have warrant for our belief that the future will be like the past. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we do. I think uh, certainly scripture reinforces our, our confidence that yeah. nature is uniform. And, you know, there, there are texts about the, the Lord maintaining the heavens and the earth, mm-hmm. and the, you know. Um, but I would, I would suggest that you don't need special revelation for that. Okay. Uh, or at least not, not in a direct way. Um, We don't need chapter and verse in scripture to tell us these things. I think these are things that can be known immediately by natural revelation, either by a a natural knowledge of God, which, of course, Calvin speaks about. And, um, you know, if if we have a a natural knowledge that there is a creator God, then then in a sense, the uniformity of nature falls out of that fairly fairly naturally. but even we could even say that we have an implanted knowledge not just of God but of the uniformity of nature. It's one of these intuitive or I- immediately known. To use the the Plantingen terminology, a properly basic belief. We have sure. a properly properly basic belief in um, in the uniformity of, of nature, and uh, that still requires a theistic basis. I suggest okay. because 
you have to explain where that properly basic belief comes from. Um, it can't just be uh, wishful thinking. It, it, right. it has to be warranted or it has to have some rational basis to it. So I don't think the naturalist can just say, oh, it's a, it's a properly basic belief, because you have to explain why that belief would be, would be warranted. Um, and that's, that's a big problem for a naturalist to explain how these a priori beliefs could in fact be warranted. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. So we don't need a proof text of, of tossing it out, but it does make sense within our grander, you know, theistic framework. Um, and, and it makes perfect sense that God would implant us that way or, or put that in our concepts in order for us to think and reason in his world where that is a necessary thing to, to have thoughts, to, to think in uh, according to inductive reasoning. Um, that's great. I, I really like that. I love using this. Um, it, it can be kind of cheeky or whatever to use, but when you're talking with someone who thinks that Christianity is just complete blind faith, irrationalism, and bringing up the problem of induction, and, and well, how do you know that the next step that you take on the on the concrete out there won't turn into jello? Like, what what reason do you have for for believing that on your worldview? Like, help me make sense of that because I know it it never has in the past, but you've never died in the past. So if we use that reasoning, will you never die in the future? Well, of course not. So what's your you know justification for thinking that the laws of nature will continue to hold? You know, on my worldview, it makes sense because I believe in God, and and yeah, I do have some some proof texts as well. But within this greater theistic framework, right? Yeah, God is holding all things together. He's he's told us that he's doing that. He's made, created us to think this way. Whereas in, in your worldview, you you think chance is just acting on matter over time, and so of course you do think this way. But I think you think this way because God made you that way, and you're living in God's universe. So come on over to this side and have some warrant, have some justification for, for walking on the concrete and not stepping in jello or thinking. Yeah. 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 yeah and, that, and that's one of the things that really appeals to me about the presuppositional uh, approach is that basically you're arguing, look, you're already halfway there mm. you're, because you're tacitly relying on the assumption that this is, this is a, a, a created universe, a, 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 a created and providentially sustained universe. Uh, you're just not acknowledging what's necessary for there to be a created providentially ordered universe. You're not acknowledging the God who provides the foundation for that. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I want to move now to uh, the Lord of non-contradiction. I know it's a, a real tricky one and we're not going to be able to get into aspectual shape of beliefs and stuff like that probably. <laughs> but um, is that cool? Do you think we can broach, broach that topic? Sure. Yeah. I'm okay. happy to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start first and foremost with, um, with Aristotle and cause I, I think that's maybe the first TA ever. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on that, but he, Aristotle argues indirectly for the law of non-contradiction because he says, look, I, I can't make a direct argument for non-contradiction because any argument I give would presuppose non-contradiction insofar as my words mean what they mean and not the opposite of what they mean. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a direct proof. I'm not doing premise to premise, but I'm saying it's necessary for our belief. So it exists. It's necessary for this conversation at all. So it exists. Do you see that as a TA? And do you think it's a good TA if it is? I, I think it, uh, I think it uh, fits the profile of a TA in that um, Aristotle is suggesting you can't argue for the law of non-contradiction from more foundational beliefs. In other words, you can't say, here's something even more sure yeah. than the law of non-contradiction, 
And I can deduce the law of non-contradiction from that because Aristotle recognizes that this is, these are one of the, this is one of the basic laws of logic is if it is an axiom, then it's as close to an axiom or a, a, a fundamental rule of logic as, as anything could be. Yeah. But instead he says, well, let's, let's suppose you deny it in order to deny it, then you're tacitly assuming it because yeah. if you're, if you're, um, if you reject the law of non-contradiction, then you're accepting that thinking can be incon- inconsistent. And so you could say that any conclusion is both true and false. Um, it opens the door to, to any kind of uh, contradiction. And uh, that, that undermines all kind of logical, any kind of logical argumentation at all. At least that's the idea. Yeah. I, I'm not convinced that it hmm. actually succeeds because... I think that um, modern work in logic. Oh no! Is fuzzy logic and stuff like that. Well, not not so much fuzzy logic as okay. non-classical logic, okay. paraconsistent logic. I think it has been shown that you can come up with pretty serviceable systems of logic that uh, don't require the law of non-contradiction. Hmm. It doesn't mean that anything goes. Okay. Uh, there's this idea that if you deny the law of non-contradiction, then anything goes. Yeah. The Actually, all it does is yeah. it means that you're you're accepting some contradictions. It doesn't mean that you have to accept every contradiction. Um, it only takes one true contradiction to uh, to reject the law of, of non-contradiction, or at least you you have to qualify. It. You have to sort of pare it down and say uh, it only applies to certain cases. Now, I do. I am not advocating. <laughs> I'm not advocating for non-classical logics. I am saying that um, they they need to be taken more seriously. They can't be very easily yeah. refuted. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think that's a problem for the argument from logic that right. we're about to discuss, because uh, actually you don't need the law of non-contradiction, or at least you don't need an unqualified version of the law of non-contradiction to to run the argument. You can run it from really any law of logic that anyone um, accepts, or indeed any necessary truth that a person is willing to accept. Um, but for the purposes of the way uh, Dr. Welty and I developed the argument, we started with the classical laws of logic because most people are happy to do that. Most people are willing to accept the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, the law of uh, excluded middle. Um, if they don't, Okay, well, that just lengthens the discussion a bit, but we can still end up at the same point. Yeah, I think that's a really smart choice on your guys' point, like kind of hedging your bets just in case and say, look, yeah, it doesn't, you know, the law, the non-contradiction doesn't have to be a retorsive starting point for everyone. Just whatever you think logic is, take your favorite uh, law of it and let's start there. Yeah. So yeah. Um, can are you able to give a brief sketch? I know it's like, a pretty tricky argument. But. I can give. I can definitely give a brief sketch. Okay. Um, what I can't do is give a full, def, full yeah. defense of every step in the argument. But the, well, the so argument. Can it get, so okay, you guys got to go and check out his blog. You have to go check it out. Go find. It's called the Lord of Non Contradiction. It's in uh, Philosophy uh, Christi, and it's on his blog. Go look at the Lord, uh, or go look at uh, If Knowledge and God. Look at all the stuff that we've mentioned because it's really hard to talk about all of it on a podcast. So he he's not going to be defending in the comment section his argument he already has defended it and he's going to again hopefully lord willing soon 
But so there's a brief sketch for everyone. Okay. It's <laughs> just a taster. This is, yes. you know, like when you go to Costco and they, they give you a, a little sample of something because right. they want you to buy the full product. That's what, yeah. that's what we're doing here. Excellent. So, so the, here's the taster. Here's the sample. Um, start with any, any law of logic. Uh, a law of logic is a, is a truth. Okay. There are many things that are true, but a, a law of logic is a, is a proposition that we take to be true. So um, take the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says that no proposition uh, is both true and false. Okay, um, that law itself is a proposition; is stated in a propositional form, and propositions can be true and false. So we would say that the law of non-contradiction is itself a truth. It's a true proposition. What is more, excuse me, just, someone's trying to phone me here. <laughs> what is more, the it's a it's a necessary truth. That is. Uh, it's not just true, it, it has to be true. It's true in, we would say, every possible world, okay? So the laws of logic are true, are propositions that are true necessarily, true in every possible world. Now, um, the next step is to argue that propositions are actual entities. They, they, they really exist. And uh, we give a number of reasons why you should think that propositions exist. One reason is simply that uh, they are they can be the objects of statements. So mm. I say I I believe that no proposition can be both true and false. I hope that uh, it will be sunny tomorrow. So there are a number of verbs uh, of of thought um, or, or mental attitudes that take propositions as their objects, and that in itself presupposes that the propositions are, are real objects, objects of thought. Mm. Uh, also, you can argue from, um, from property attribution. So to say that a proposition is true, you're saying that something has a property. A, a proposition has the property of being true. Mm. Well, something can only have a property if it exists. A proposition can only be true if a proposition is actually a thing that can bear property. Yeah. Just as you, the ball can't be read, unless the ball exists. Likewise, a proposition can't be true unless the proposition exists. So we've got necessarily true propositions and propositions that uh, exist, they're real entities. The next step is to argue that if, if a proposition is necessarily true, it must exist necessarily. That is, if a proposition is true in every possible world, then it exists in every possible world. It is a necessarily existent thing. Okay, so the laws of logic, if they exist, they exist necessarily. So we've got to the point where we're arguing that the laws of logic are necessarily existent propositions. The next step is to argue that propositions are mental entities. They're not physical things. They're not contingent things. They're not concrete things like physical objects. Um, they are uh, mental because... Basically, what we argue is that they have a, a special feature known as intentionality. Mm -hmm. um, intentionality is what we roughly call aboutness. So our thoughts are about certain things. So our thoughts, um, if I think that um, Paris is beautiful in the spring, that thought is about something, namely Paris. It's directed towards something. Mm -hmm. And this is a distinctive feature. Uh, arguably, the defining feature of, of thoughts, uh, beliefs, hopes they have this property of intentionality which propositions have so propositions have this feature that is distinctive of mentality in other words what we have here is an argument that propositions are actually thoughts 
fundamentally propositions are mental entities. They can't be physical things. Um, they're best understood as, as, as some sort of mental entity. But here's the rub. They can't be our thoughts because we've argued that the laws of logic, at least, are necessarily existent propositions. And no human thought, indeed no creaturely thought, could, be a ne could exist necessarily because human beings don't exist necessarily. No finite, finite minds exist necessarily. So if there are necessarily existent thoughts, there must be a necessarily existent mind. There must be a, a mind um, that exists in every possible world. And once you get to that point, you're, you're basically at, at theism. I mean, there are a few moves that you can make to try and avoid the theistic conclusion. But once you've granted that there is a necessarily existent mind, you've you've certainly stepped well away from the realm of naturalism um, yeah. or anything else that that denies that there is some some ultimate transcendent mind that grounds ultimately grounds all truths. That's what we're we're arguing, in effect. And so, um, so uh, is that it? That's that's, that's yeah. It. I probably said too much. It was supposed to be <laughs> short and sweet. No, but, that was great. That yeah. was great. I'm just thinking initially because um, Lewis, you know, in his argument from reason, he goes, well, right now we haven't got to theism. We've got to idealism. And so I'm thinking, could the idealist affirm what you've just affirmed? But I think the difference is we have thoughts that are about propositions, whereas these propositions like the law of not contradiction necessarily exist. So there has to be a distinction between me and the mind in which the law of not contradiction exists so it can't be idealism there i'm different than god right is that would this preclude idealism it depends what what we mean by idealism mm. uh, right i mean if oh, you're yeah i mean there's there's absolutely. a sort of there's a theistic idealism and there's a non-theistic idealism yeah so an absolute idealism maybe like pantheism panentheism okay uh that the if 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 the if absolute idealism is is not a form of personalism, that mm -hmm. is, God is not conceived as a personal being, then I, I don't know what sense it makes to say that this being has thoughts that are directed towards certain things. I mean, I, I don't know anything uh, that, that has a, a mind that thinks about things that isn't also personal in nature. Yeah, thoughts so, uh, thinkers, right? Right. Thoughts presuppose thinkers and, uh, and, Thoughts, I, I would argue, are are intrinsically first person. That is to say, a thought is always a thought of someone, some some person. Um, this is certainly true of, of experiences. So when we talk about experience, we're talking about some first person perspective, some subjective phenomenon. And I think the same is true of thoughts, that uh, a thought is always a thought of a person. Um, and that that would be true of these uh, necessarily existent thoughts that we've argued for. Okay. Okay. And then um, a question that I, I don't know how to answer. I think you've answered this. I think you you and Welty have addressed this question. But I was talking with uh, Paul Gould the other day, and he loves your argument. You know, he he affirms it and and he uses it in his own course courses. He teaches it and stuff like that, um, which is awesome. But he thinks that it would commit you to denying simplicity. And I don't think that you and Dr. Welty deny simplicity. Maybe you do, but or maybe you have to qualify it because he thinks that now now you you have composition in the in the mind or in the being of God because he has thoughts that necessarily exist. What do you think to that about that? 
I think a lot of things. <laughs> uh, the first thing I think is I do not want to deny divine simplicity. Okay, right. so I see myself as someone who is committed to divine simplicity for fundamentally theological reasons. That yeah. is to say, I think that divine simplicity follows from divine aseity, from from self sufficiency. Um, yeah. uh, so I think there are there are are good theological grounds for holding to divine simplicity. I will also add, though, that there are different versions of divine sure. simplicity. Um, some are, let's say, more modest than others. Some make stronger claims than others. The Thomistic version is particularly austere. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very strong doctrine of divine simplicity, yeah. and, it, and it may well be right, but um, I don't think it's fair to say that, that if someone holds to divine simplicity, they have to, have to hold to the full Thomist package. Yeah. At least that, that's going to be a, a secondary argument. Now, to the question of whether our argument uh, is raises problems for divine simplicity, the, the argument is, well, if, if propositions are divine thoughts, well, there are a multiplicity of propositions. There's the, the, the proposition that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. There's a proposition that it's going to rain tomorrow. There's a proposition two plus two equals four. We've got all these distinct propositions. If these are divine thoughts, then there must be a real distinction between these thoughts, these divine thoughts, or there must be a real multiplicity of divine thoughts. And if if these thoughts are are diverse rather than one, then either there's something outside of God, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, that right. God, God's thoughts are something outside of, of him, or extra, ad extra, to use the theological term, or they are ad intra, they're, they're within the being of God, but then God isn't uh, a pure unity um, yeah. in the way that divine simplicity wants to affirm. I think there are a number of moves that one can make here. And here's, here's one suggestion. So defenders of divine simplicity have already addressed the question of divine actions. Mm-hmm. And the argument is, well, God, God acts, uh, performs uh, a range of actions. So God uh, parts the Red Sea for Moses. Uh, God, um, you know, um, various biblical historical events that the, the God, God, uh, great acts of redemptive acts of history. So, yeah. so, so there are many acts or a multiplicity of acts that God, um, that God performs or, or God engages in. And defenders of divine simplicity have argued that, that really there's just one divine action, one unified divine action that from our perspective uh, appears uh, as a multiplicity. That is that what, when we talk about divine actions, we're actually talking about different aspects of one super act, as it were, one super unified divine action. So God God just performs one action, hmm. but that one action, as it were, contains in itself all of these, what we refer to as distinct actions. A, a, a very loose analogy would be a, a prism applied to white light. So you have a beam of white light. It passes through a prism, and we see a multiplicity of colors. Yep. It's, it's rather as though God's, God's act, eternal act, is this, this pure whiteness, 
okay? But we, in our creaturely position, are looking through the prism and we see a diversity of actions and we make distinctions between God did this and God did that. But from God's standpoint, as it were, ad, ad intra or God, God in himself, um, there is there is this just this one unified divine act. Okay, so we've laid some foundation because yep. the next step is to argue that divine thoughts are just mental actions. Okay, one way to think about thoughts is to think about them as as acts of a mind, things a mind does. So thoughts aren't objects per se; they mm. are actually actions. They're acts. Uh. So so if if we say that propositions are divine thoughts, mm-hmm. then what we're really saying is that they're divine mental acts, yeah. God's acts of thought. And if if acts in general, if God's acts in general aren't a problem for divine simplicity, then this particular category of divine actions shouldn't be either. So so wow. that's one one way to approach it. Um, another way another way to make the same argument is to argue that um, Dr. Edward Fazer. Uh, is mm-hmm. a Thomist, accepts divine simplicity, and also offers a version of our argument in, yep. in one of his books, ergo, it must be consistent with divine simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> argument ad phaserum. And that's, and that's on the strong, austere uh, uh, oh, yeah. simplicity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, this is tongue-in-cheek, because you know, right. maybe, maybe Phaser's wrong too. Maybe, sure. maybe he's got a problem he doesn't realize. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it counts for something. Yeah, that's good. Um, something that I've, I've been thinking about, I don't know if you guys have addressed this or not, and, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me like, okay, so the law of non-contradiction is a divine thought. It, it like resides, not, it's not a part, like you just explained, but it, it's grounded in the mind of God. That That's fair to say, right? It's grounded in the mind of God. Yeah. Okay. So it's a truth bearer, but would you say that God's self-consistent nature is the truth maker, which makes that truth uh, bearer true? Or do you think just because it's necessarily true, it doesn't need a truth maker? It's an interesting question. So our, our argument doesn't focus on the truth maker aspect. Right. So, so our argument yeah. is just focusing on the truth bearer itself, the proposition mm-hmm. and the nature of the truth yeah. bearers. I'm, I'm certainly inclined toward the view that uh, every every truth requires a truth maker of some kind okay. at least that's my my default stance unless there yeah. are good unless there are good arguments uh for some particular truth not having a truth maker um but in the case of the laws of logic then yes i would say the truth maker is is god specifically that aspect of god that we would we would call um, rational order or rational consistency. And there's a, there's a little bit of circularity there because it's as though we're saying the, the, the truth maker of logic is God's logical nature. Right, um, right. I'm just not sure that there's a way around that in the same way that um, God's, um, let's say, um, take an analogy, moral truths. So there's, there's a moral argument that God is the is the ground of moral truths or moral moral norms moral principles mm-hmm. um so god is the tr- let's say that god is the truth maker for let's say um the moral principle you shall not steal mm-hmm. um well uh what what aspect of god are we appealing to there we're appealing to god's moral goodness or or 
or we could maybe appeal to certain other divine attributes, maybe a combination of God's benevolence, God's wisdom, so forth. But there comes a point where you sort of hit hit explanatory rock bottom, and uh, there is no there's nothing deeper to be said that, than God is the truth maker for this necessary principle, whether it's a necessary principle of logic or a necessary principle of morality. Yeah. I love that. I think I, I want to bring up the, the truth maker because I think it's consistent with, with, with Van Til's concerns in uh, intro to, to ST about, you know, God's nature is the grounding of this. And I think if we do this move, then I know Dr. Welty likes to, uh, in, in his book or in his chapter in beyond the control of God, he, he likes this inconsistent triad that like laws of logic depend on God, but they also don't depend on God because it's not like he could make things contradictory but I like the, the truth maker uh, aspect because it's not that the law of contradiction, non-contradiction just exists in his mind um, or is his thought. It's a thought because it's consistent with his nature. And, and like you said, yeah, once we get that deep at the ground level, it's kind of like, okay. But I, I think just a semantic, uh, I want to be consistent with, with Ventil's concerns there, um, which I think you guys are. And, and so ultimately how this fleshes out is so great because if it's uh, a sound argument, that means that anytime you reason, uh, anytime you use the law of non-contradiction or, you know, fill in the blank, uh, logical truth, then you are at least tacitly presupposing the metaphysical existence of God. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You, you might not be consciously doing it, yep. but as, as a point of, uh, as it were, philosophical necessity or metaphysical necessity, you you are. Yeah. Um, Rather like um, if someone's reasoning inductively, they are presupposing the uniformity of nature, even if they've never heard of Hume, they've never thought about the uniformity of nature, they don't have a conception of the uniformity of nature, they're, they're tacitly relying on that assumption. In other yeah. words, if that, if that assumption were not the case, or if, if, to put it more strongly, if metaphysically speaking, the universe were not uniform, then they would not be able to engage in that inductive reasoning. And we're saying something structurally parallel to that regarding our use of the laws of logic. Yeah, I love that. And, and a big part of, of apologetics um, is getting them to see what they're tacitly forced to presuppose. And hey, just recognize it, you know, come on over to this side where you can freely recognize that. Um, really, or even better, just just look down at your feet and see what yeah. you've been standing on the whole time. Yes, yes, and and I love Van Til brings up a he talks about a a diving board and he's like, yeah, if you look down, okay, you're on a diving board and it's this proximate starting point, but look back and you see this diving board is connected to a rock or connected to the the pool. And uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, he he also talks about lily pads and says, look at the lily pad. You can infer that there's a stem going down and there's a, a rock bottom that this the roots are touching. So just do it. Look down. Let come on over to this side, um, real quick. This this is super periphery, but it's just a question I've I've had when when thinking about you know, realism and stuff like that. Talked about properties, and in my head, I think like Bilbo Baggins has properties, but he doesn't exist. And so I'm having a hard time with that. Like he has this property of being short or a hobbit or whatever, but he he's a fictional character. Right. So unless he exists in like Tolkien's mind or now in like the book or in your and my mind, I, I don't know how to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the whole topic of, of fictional objects is a 
is a is a difficult one. I mean, there's a lot of philosophical debate over um, whether you know. Obviously, the statement um, uh, "Bilbo Baggins is short" is grammatically parallel to um, you know, "My seven-year-old son is is short." Uh, so there, well, not for his age, I mean, <laughs> compared to the rest of us. Um, so, uh, if, if the statement, my son is short, uh, presupposes the existence of my son, why doesn't Bilbo Baggins is short presuppose the existence of Bilbo Baggins? Um, I think the best solution to that is to recognize that, uh, the truth maker for, uh, a claim about Bilbo Baggins, uh, has to do with, uh, it's a it's a truth claim about a fictional world. That mm-hmm. is to say, that when we make these predications, um, they're they're either relative to a, a frame of reference, a factual frame of reference, the real world, or they are made uh, relative to a a basically a possible world. Yeah. But it's a possible world that has been picked out by an author, a creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien has actually picked out a particular possible world and described it in considerable detail. That doesn't mean that he he just discovered the Lord of the Rings and uh, can't take credit for it. Of course, there's a great deal of artistic skill, literary skill in in painting a picture of that world for the rest of us. But in in essence, what he's done is he's made a claim about a, a possible being, Bilbo Baggins, in a possible world, and it's true in that world. And so when you evaluate the truth claim, you are implicitly framing it in terms of that that uh, fictional world that possible mm. world that we call middle earth or you know whatever the the world is in which these stories are set now you can't make the same move to, maybe to anticipate a question here yeah. you can't make the same move regarding the laws of logic um <laughs> uh, because you know we've argued well if a proposition is true then problem has has to exist um the the laws of logic are not like Bilbo Baggins to put mm. not too fine a point on it, uh, in that the, the the Bilbo Baggins really is fictional and and J.R.R. Tolkien invented uh, truths about Bilbo Baggins or at least at least invented um, the story was the creator of the story that that, that makes those truths true for us, but um, no one invented a story about the laws of logic, yeah, and if they did then we could just come up with another story and another set of truths. And logic isn't like that. It's the same with mathematics. Uh, that's why I reject a fictionalist account of mathematics, because I think two plus two equals four is a truth that is mind independent. It's language independent. It is what it is, regardless of what anyone thinks about it or any fictional schemes we might come up with. Um, it, it, it is it is more real than uh, than a fictional story would be, or the, or the objects in a fictional story. I don't know yeah. if that's where you wanted to go with that. That is, I went with it anyway. That's exactly what I was thinking because that's just a live question for me. I I do really like that, and I like. Yeah, I'm so glad you anticipated the uh, the laws of logic in that one too. Um, we, we got to let you go here pretty soon, but I wanted to ask one or two more. Um, everyone online will kill me if I don't ask about this, but I wanted to ask about world directed versus conceptual TAs. And I know this is a whole bag of worms and stuff like that, but this is really what people want to hear about. They do. Everyone wants to talk about it. Um, And they, they wouldn't let me off the hook because um, I talk about a lot because of Stroud and he keeps me up at night. But uh, does your, 
you and does your argument with Welty, your co-authored argument, does it escape the the bifurcation between world directed and and conceptual TAs that Stroud brings up? This could require a long answer, um, uh, and, and I'm going I'm to assume that your listeners, or at least the people interested in this question, are, are familiar with uh, yeah. Stroud's objection to transcendental arguments, or at least world-direct transcendental arguments that seek to prove that something is true or that something is the case. Yeah. And basically, Stroud says, well, maybe it's enough uh, for it to appear to be the case, or it's enough for us to believe that it's a case, not that it's actually true. Um, what's interesting is that there seem to be some transcendental arguments that do evade that. Mm. And I made reference earlier to um, an article by Adrian Barden, uh, which, which says that the Descartes argument um, is, fits the profile of a transcendental argument. But also it seems to evade the, uh, uh, the dilemma that Stroud poses between verificationism and idealism. So, so Stroud says if you, if you want a world-directed TA, then either you're going to have to embrace some kind of verificationist principle, which means that you don't need a TA in the first place, because yeah. the verificationist principle will do the work for you, or you have to embrace some kind of idealism that collapses the distinction between appearance and reality. And that's just the sort of thing we're trying to avoid, or at least not many people really want to be idealists in that way. But it seems as though uh, Descartes, argument doesn't um does doesn't require verification as principle nor does it commit you to idealism now it's of course a very very modest argument yeah. um you're proving your own existence <laughs> right it doesn't um, go, yeah. but it, it maybe illustrates the principle that this this is an objection that applies to all tas now take take our argument for logic can I, dr anderson can i jump in real quick just for a clarification for people so mm -hmm. um so stroud is arguing in this uh uh conceptual versus world-directed that, look, the proponents of transcendental arguments want to prove that something about the world, something directed at the world. But what he's saying is, I think it, it why doesn't it just prove something about the way you think? Like we go back to Kant's transcendental idealism. It doesn't get to the thing in itself. It doesn't get you to the tree, the ding on seek of the tree. It gets you to your thoughts about the tree. So maybe this transcendental argument for God just proves that we have to think there is a God, but not that there actually yeah. is a God. And yeah. so if kind of verification thing that you can verify God apart from the TA who needs a TA uh, or you have to collapse this this distinction and say what my concepts uh, project onto the world is the world the world just is my projection of thought and that doesn't seem very good either so right. that's where we're at with Stroud and then Dr. Anderson's going to explain his argument and whether it evades it or not. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. It, it really it depends. With, uh, it hangs on um, whether you think you can prove some mind-independent truth or mind-independent reality. So the, the world-directed transcendental argument uh, aims to show that there's some uh, mind-independent reality, at least independent of human minds, yeah. for sure. Um, whereas the, the more modest just says, well, we have to, it just shows that we have to think a certain way. Um, so to take our argument for, uh, for God from logic, um, you start with the, the, the premise that there are uh, laws of logic. You reflect on the nature of the laws of logic. You follow, you, you follow the argument through. And the conclusion of the argument is that God exists. The conclusion of the argument is not that you have to believe that God exists. 
or that you have to think that God exists or that you have to have the idea of God. So on mm. the face of it, our argument, uh, if, if, if it's a sound argument, then it is showing that if there are laws of logic, then God exists. Now, I don't think that, uh, I, I'm not sure how a Stroudian objection would apply to that. Mm. Um, un unless you're going to really say something like, well, one of the moves in the argument, um, it seems to be true, but it isn't really true. So maybe there's some, uh, some, comp some link in the argument where you're relying on some insight or intuition, maybe a modal intuition. Sure. about the laws of logic and that's assuming that these modal intuitions are actually um veridical that they actually apply to the way things really are just as opposed to the way we think about them okay um i'm just not sure really how problematic that that would be i think i think any argument relies on some modal intuitions and if someone wants to say we can't trust all of our modal intuitions, or un unless you can prove that our modal intuitions map onto a mind-independent reality, you haven't succeeded. I'm going to say, I'm sorry, that's that's a ridiculously hard buy for any, bar for any argument. And that's just such an extreme form of skepticism that we, we can't even have a conversation now. Um, someone who is, who is going to question any kind of logical or modal, bimodal intuitions, just so people are clear. Yeah. I mean, intuitions about what is necessary, what is possible, what are, what are entailments, logical entailments or metaphysical oh. entailments. Um, if someone's going to cast out on all of that and say, well, unless you can, you can verify that, then you haven't succeeded in your argument. I'm going to say, well, okay. But, but <laughs> in that case, you've, you've given up, um, really any any kind of uh um if you can't trust those intuitions then you can't trust your reasoning at all so in a sense that kind of objection is super skeptical it's so skeptical it's it's utterly self-defeating mm. um another way to approach it is to say well let's suppose that that transcendental argument for the existence of god just is a modest transcendental argument all it shows is that we have to believe in god yeah. or that we have to we have to think um it, it it's it's unavoidable that it appears to us that there's a god seems pretty good <laughs> i mean <laughs> uh, got an argument that excuse me a second yep got an argument that um someone someone thinks that's really good they're giving you a call i know they i know they're phoning in with applause <laughs> um someone says uh you know um uh that's not you know, if I've got an argument that says that shows that someone has to believe in God or, or, or in order to be consistent, they have to believe in God or they have to presuppose God. I think that's a pretty, pretty good argument. That doesn't mean it's not worth uh, continuing to see if, if you can if you can uh, get around the Stroudian objection. Yeah. But um, I still think that's a that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Greg Bonson would say, you know, speak into the mic. You know, I, yeah, I have to admit that the guy exists. Come speaking to the mic. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting calls here that I think are kind of urgent. So yeah, I better. Yeah. I, I think we we'll need to wrap up. Thank you uh, so much for all your time, Doctor Anson. It's okay, sorry to cut it short. No worries. Appreciate all it. Right. Yeah. God bless. All right. All right. Well, uh, Doctor Anson had to take an urgent call, but uh, we're so grateful for all the time that he he gave us. For a lot of you guys thinking right now, 
this argument seems really tough. This argument from uh, the law of non-contradiction and all this stuff going on. I really, really suggest that you get, why should I believe in Christianity? Uh, in one of these chapters, chapter three or four, um, God is there. Dr. Anderson goes over an argument from reason in layman's terms, which won't satisfy every philosopher, but that's why him and Dr. Welty wrote the really in-depth article called The Lord of Non-Contradiction. So he's he's written it at a popular level. He's written it for philosophers. I suggest you really check that stuff out ASAP. Um, go and follow uh, his Twitter. Go and uh, read his articles at Pragonosco. Or just type in James Anderson, uh, Analogical Thoughts into Google, and it'll bring you right to his site. He's got lots of different articles that he's published in journals, uh, lots of popular level arguments. Uh, they've been very, very beneficial for me. And most of my papers that I write here at Trinity have some kind of influence from some blog posts that I, wrote, I read from him. So um, that's going to have to be it, guys. We covered a lot of stuff today. We could cover more. Uh, Lord willing, Dr. Anderson will come back on the uh, podcast sometime soon. But that's going to have to do it for today. So as always, all glory to God.